1: Hey, this is Greg Milano, founder and CEO of Fortuna Advisors. And if you want to learn how to connect with the best, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel.
0: Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chapel, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, If you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place because this is the Build Your Network podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Greg Milano. Greg is the founder and chief executive officer of Fortuna Advisors LLC, a leading expert in capital allocation, behavioral finance, and incentive compensation design. He has nearly 30 years experience in management consulting, and he's the author of the new book, Curing Corporate Short-Termism, Future Growth Versus Current earnings. Guys, it's going to be a really interesting conversation that I have with Greg. But first, really quickly, if you are a six or seven figure entrepreneur, you're in the entrepreneurial space, you know how much a podcast could benefit your brand, your business, your company, but you just have no uh, desire to really get to know how a podcast works and how to produce it on the back end. You don't have the team or the resources or the time, whatever it is, but you know that you want a show, then have me and my team build it for you. Head over to trapchapelcom slash podcast There's a quick application there and then we'll jump on a call this see if my team would be a good fit to build a show for you so that you can focus on what you're good at, which is helping your clients and your customers. And we can focus on what we're good at, which is building chart-topping, amazing quality podcasts. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Um, I want to jump into this field that you're in. It is such a crazy, it's, it's such a needed slash underrated area of focus and so i'm excited to get into some some things with you but first really before we do that let's jump in and build some context for those listening talk to me about junior high greg let's take it all the way back to like your family life growing up and how that kind of played into the career path that you ended up going down
1: well i grew up in the suburbs of new york and um was a uh Uh, a wrestler in high school and uh, had my own business digging clams on the Great South Bay on the south shore of Long Island from a very young age. So I guess the fact that I've started a couple of businesses in my life could have been foreshadowed uh, at that point in time. But, uh, you know, always, always studied a lot, always very numerate, always, uh, you know, trying to figure things out and I think uh, the way I was back then is uh, maybe not in many ways not very different from the way I am now.
0: Yeah, sure. What were like your main interest like areas back then? Were you big into academics in school or sports or anything um, that sticks I out?
1: Think, yeah, I did uh, pretty well in school, but I uh, was probably more interested in, in sports and in my business, to be fair. Yeah, um, gotcha. You know, like a lot of people, I think that you know, I didn't really value the education part of it until a little bit later in my life.
0: Sure. Do you feel like you were so interested in that business entrepreneurship space that young because of any sort of like parental influence or cultural influence? Or do you think there's just kind of something that was innate desire inside of you?
1: I think it was innate. I was influenced a lot by my older brothers. I followed in their footsteps in my first business. You know, they kind of helped me along the way to get started. But okay. um, you know, where I've taken it since then has been very different from any of them or my father. So I think a lot of that's just sort of internal. Yeah, right. Did you decide to go to college then after out of high school? Yeah, I went to college and went to engineering school, became a mechanical engineer. Was that opposing to what you wanted to do? Like
0: obviously you had that entrepreneurial, that business itch in in high school, but then you ended up going a completely different path in college. Was that on purpose?
1: Uh yeah, it was. And I to this day, I think the engineering degree was really productive for me, although I don't use the actual engineering analytical skills that much. Um, One thing about engineering school is it teaches you to problem solve. That's what I do all day now. And I think my ability to approach a problem, identify its characteristics, uh, the alternative solutions and evaluate those solutions is uh, directly, you know, affected by, you know, what, what I learned at engineering school.
0: After you graduated from school, how long did it take you to realize that you didn't want to be in the engineering path for your career?
1: Well, I immediately flipped when I got out of school. I took a okay. position, a sales engineering position, which was really sales for people that had an engineering background. Uh, but then you know, in less than a year, I found that that wasn't a really productive path for me. So I went back into engineering as a career. But while I was working as an engineer, I went to school at night at NYU to get my MBA. And that's what opened up. The doors to what eventually became my consulting career, and eventually my entrepreneurs.
0: Gotcha. So when you were when you were actually doing the work that you had gotten your bachelor's for, you were at night studying to jump back into the business world. So was it was it something that that happened while you were an engineer that made you realize that you'd wanted to go down that path, or like what like what made you? Because obviously, you're being an engineer is a you know, a good career. It's something that a lot of people aspire to and it's a, it's a good career path, a good career choice. But there's obviously something inside of you that made you be like, actually, I don't know if I want to just do this. I should go to school to study for my MBA so I can get back into this entrepreneurship business thing.
1: There wasn't one specific moment. It was a series of dominoes that fell. I was torn on whether I wanted to get a master's in engineering or a master's in business. And I opened up one of my textbooks from my undergraduate engineering, probably my toughest class I took. Uh, the course was called the lumped parameter system, and we used to just call it lumps. I opened up the book, and there was such a long equation on the page that I said, "Oh my God, I couldn't possibly do that again." <laughs> so I decided to go for, for for business, and it wasn't really until I took my first corporate finance class that I realized it was. At first, I thought it would just be an MBA to help me, you know, maybe qualify for management a little bit earlier. Yeah. But, I was really intrigued by corporate finance and how you could use analysis to evaluate stock prices and to evaluate company performance in ways I'd never even envisioned. And that's what really intrigued me uh, a lot. I changed schools to get to a a more finance-oriented MBA at NYU. And then, um, you know, it kind of took off from there. Got it. So at that time, if, if there's somebody listening
0: right now who's maybe... At a similar fork in the road that you were at at that time, what would be your advice to them on figuring out what the correct path for them in their lives would be?
1: I think as you evaluate your different paths in your life, you have to really think about what you're good at and what you like doing. People think about that in terms of a general career like engineering or accounting or medicine or what have you. But I think a lot of it comes down to the nature of the specific jobs. You know, within my general field of of, uh, corporate finance and management, you know, there are people that are, you know, complete introverts doing analysis in a closed room all day long that are very happy with what they're doing. And there are other people who are out interfacing with people and selling and making presentations all the time. And they're happy with what they're doing. And they're technically in the same field, but they're in very different kinds of jobs. I think as as a person goes through their first few jobs in their life, They need to think about what are the characteristics of those jobs that they really like and that they're really good at. And then whenever new opportunities come along, they need to weigh them against that list of of criteria to see, you know, is this something that I'm going to be good at and I'm going to be happy with? And, And that should really steer them.
0: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. Yeah, sure. And I think that exactly what you said there is having that combination of like the things that you're good at, the things that make you happy and fulfill you and things that maybe challenge you and things that you have fun with instead of just looking at it as a linear path because of what parents or culture or, you know, people in general think is the better path for you. And I think, I think talking about that strengths part of that is a really necessary part of the equation because there's a lot of people out there that tell you to to button up your weaknesses and focus on your weaknesses and turn them into strengths and all that stuff. But then there's an entire other, you know, group of people who are saying, forget about your weaknesses, double down, triple down on your strengths because they're strengths for a reason. What would you say on in that discussion? Is there any, is there any insight that you could offer? I don't
1: think it's an either or, I mean, I think you kind of have to do both if you really want to be successful. I think capitalizing on your strengths is, is critical to success, but, you know, we all have weaknesses and finding ways to reduce the effect of those weaknesses, make them less of a drag on on what you do is just as important. So I, I don't really think it's one or the other. I think you really if you want to be really successful, you have to do both. Right, so let's go a little bit back into your
0: story then. Talk to me about your transition away from after you get your MBA away from the engineering path and into the entrepreneurial path. What was that first business and how did you become successful with it?
1: Well, I worked for a consulting firm called Stern-Stewart in the 1990s and early 2000s. And I progressed pretty well in terms of you know, advising clients and moving up the, the ranks of the organization to eventually becoming a partner in 1997. And soon after I became a partner, they gave me the opportunity to move to London and found Stern-Stewart Europe. And so mm-hmm. although it was still part of the parent company, it was my first opportunity to kind of run a complete business myself. Yeah, Everybody working in that business reported to me. And uh, we were able to build a business that, in just a few years, was about ninety percent of the size of the, the U.S. business that had been around for a few decades. Wow! Um, and a lot of it was around how you know how we cultivated the team and uh, really built a team that was very energetic and, and very driven. But it was also, I think, around you know how we how we connected with people in the community. Being American and moving over there, I had no network, so I engaged a series of what I called introducers, who were people who. Connected me with executives at potential clients that they knew, and uh, you know, we worked out a sort of pay system for them that motivated them to do so. And uh, you know, we were able to uh, you know to get in and have a have a shot on goal with a lot of different opportunities in pretty rapid fire succession. So I mean, it was a real you know you know it was a real networking success story, if you will. Yeah, for sure. Can you tell me a little bit more specifics or details on that? Well, what we looked for, we were we were our, our services both in that company then and, and Fortuna Advisors that I lead now are typically aimed at the most senior people in an organization because we're trying to change the very way they carry out business management and, and even the culture of the organization. So you, you can't really do either of those things unless you you get hooks into the top of the company. Uh, what we did was we found people that were retired executives that maybe didn't feel like they were done with their career, but didn't really have you know the uh, the desire to be in a full-time role anywhere anymore. Uh, and they tended to have very good networks. They tended to, to know a lot of very important people. You know, my challenge was to convince them that what we were doing would be good for the companies we worked with. That the companies would be better off, the employees would be better off, the customers would be better off, the shareholders would be better off if they embraced our way of doing business. And once they believed in the purpose of what we were after, they were willing to sign on. You know, as I say, uh, you know, we we hired them all with a, a financial contract that gave them some rewards to the extent they helped us be successful. But we never would have gotten to that point if they didn't believe in what we were doing. So my focus with them was on convincing them of the sort of goodness we would be imparting on these companies so that they felt good about introducing them to their very coveted network. And and that worked out very well. What was
0: the initial relationship that you had with the people that were the introducers? Like, How did you get to know those
1: people? I had a publicist who was pretty well connected. He introduced me to a, a, a few of them. And then I met one through a client. I was working with the client and then met a friend of the CEO and then you know, we kind of hit it off and he became an introducer. So you know, they all came about, came about in different ways. It was mostly uh, keeping my ears open when I was in meetings with important people and trying to you know, figure out opportunities that maybe other people weren't thinking of.
0: Yeah, right. This is a question that I ask everybody on the show and, and being somebody like yourself, Greg, who's really well-educated, obviously, but also very well-connected, I'm curious to hear what you would have to say about this. Do you believe that it's who you know or what you know that's more important and why do you believe that? And I do I do want you to think about like picking one of them as a, because like, I know the answer is always going to be both to some regard, right? But if you if you had to choose one of them to focus the majority of your time on, which one would you be focusing more on?
1: I think that if you could only have one it would have to be what you know. Okay. I and what's feel that? that the having an actual offering, an actual service, an actual something that's better than the alternative is is critical because ultimately the ability to create value for your clients and have them then create value for you in terms of a willingness to pay you a you know a, a, a decent amount. Is driven by the ability to actually do something differentiated for them. Sure. Now, sure. it really is both because even if you have that, it's useless without a network. Yeah. But a network without a product isn't much use either. And sure. So, you know, I think that you have to start with having something of value to offer and then, you know, trying to build a network to, to help you leverage it and, you know, and, and bring it more widely is, is critical to success. But I think if you don't have something to offer, the network isn't that valuable
0: what if somebody's listening to this right now and they're they're saying greg i totally get it i'm on board but they don't really they don't have that thing yet and they don't know exactly how to find it do you have any advice for somebody on how to kind of navigate becoming good at that one thing if if they if they're just kind of all over the place and they just don't exactly know which path to go down
1: yeah i mean i think it's a challenge and it's a you know, the answer is probably unique to different people. It's hard to provide a, a general answer. Sure, you know, to that. But I think that kind of similar to the career advice earlier, I think it's really important to periodically, you know, sort of identify what it is you do that is valuable and unique, build those strengths to the point where, you know, they'll be valuable to others, whether you're looking for a job or you're looking to run a business or start a business or what have you. You know, people don't put enough weight on differentiation mm. and yeah, I use you know, that word unique for sure. Yeah, unique, meaningful, you know, distinctive. I, I think that you know, if you have if you have some sort of a product or service that you're offering, and you look at the competition, um, you know, if you're not able to price higher than they are, or you're not growing faster than they are, then you're not differentiated. Hmm. And thinking about how to make what you're doing more differentiated so that it really stands out and and uh, you know people really want to you know hire you or buy what you're offering. You know, is the most important thing, but it's hard sometimes to figure out what it is that they'll value. So it requires a lot of experimentation as well. Yeah, I love what, I love that last part that you just said. Can you kind of
0: expound on how you are able to figure out what people value? Because that's really the name of the game, right? Is being able to offer value for people, either for your customers in exchange for money. Right or for people in your network in exchange for just building relationships in general. So how do you specifically go about trying to find out what is valuable for people?
1: Well, I think when we started Fortuna Advisors 11 years ago, we we knew that nobody would know who Fortuna Advisors was, and so we had to try to get some recognition somehow. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, I think that we 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 felt like we had a better way to measure success inside of an organization, you know, financial success, and that, you know, we could weave that into better ways of planning and investment decision-making and all sorts of other business management processes. And, uh, but we didn't know how to, you know, let people know that we existed. So what I decided to do was I decided to, to try to write a few articles. We wrote a few articles that we just sort of self-published. Our firm is Fortuna Advisors. So we used the uh, sort of publication name of Bona Fortuna. And uh, we published a few articles that way. And then the editor of CFO Magazine asked me if I would write an article for for their website. I did so. He liked it. Did more. We've now written over 100 articles for for them. Similarly, we got into you know FEI and uh, Journal of Applied Corporate Finance, where I'm now on the uh, editorial advisory board. And you know, just by writing thought pieces about what we were doing, and then broadcasting them through LinkedIn and through uh, sending out broadcast emails to a network of people and so forth. We were able to build some awareness of what we're doing that didn't, you know, didn't exist when we started the company. And you know, we've some of our clients. We had a client, for example, a very large company, over 100,000 employees. They reached out to us to initiate work in uh, late 2018. That's continued into this year. And that, that reach out uh, came along with one of my articles attached to the email. You know, he said, "Hey, I read this article. We've been talking about it internally. We think we need your help." You know, and that's stimulated a phone call and then a meeting and then and engagement that, you know, as I say, you know, lasted well over a year. So we found that by taking, you know, trying to be viewed as thought leaders in an area where people were looking for thought leadership and trying to get to people by just writing on interesting topics. We And we, we base a lot of our writings on uh, unique research we've done of companies to see what works and what doesn't work. And then we publish our findings. So it's not opinions, mm-hmm. you know, we're publishing facts that we've observed. And that really has, I think, also made people kind of like, you know, there's a million people out there with opinions. The fact that we back up our opinions with facts is something that a lot of people like. So, you know, a lot of trial and error. Some things haven't worked as well as we thought they would. Some things have, you know, we find that being pretty steady in our release of materials, messaging is really important. Uh, Today, for example, we released our 2020 buyback ROI report, which is something we've been doing now for nine years. And, uh, you know, it ranks companies on how well they buy back their own stock, some very successful, some very unsuccessfully. And, you know, we write a big long report about this, which a lot of people read, and that, you know, opens up the door to having discussions of potential work we can do for them and so forth.
0: Yeah, what would you say to a company that maybe has not up to this point, like if somebody's listening right now and they up to this point have not seen the value in content creation as a whole? Because essentially what you're talking about, a different form than a podcast, sure, but it's all the same idea, right? Creating content that is offering value to people without asking for anything in return, just offering it up for free and, and, and allowing people to consume that information that you've put a lot of work into and not asking for money in exchange for it. But what would you say to somebody who maybe ha- up to this point has not valued content creation enough to start doing that in their business yet?
1: Well, I think, you know, our our shtick, so to speak, I mean, the name of my book is Curing Corporate Short-Termism. We try and live and breathe it. And I think the, the, the point of, during corporate short-termism is really directly involved in answering your question, because uh, if you're running a small business and, and, and you think that it's possible that some kind of content creation may be different from what we do, but some kind of content creation could be helpful, but you haven't taken the steps on doing it because it takes time, it takes work, it takes sweat equity to do these things, and they take time to pay off. That means you're not thinking long-term enough. I think that you know if you think about where you want to be two or three years from now in your business, the idea of taking out the time to produce Written materials, or you know, maybe in a more modern way, producing video and podcasts and so forth, and using them to get messages out to people that you know might then be interested in what you're doing. You know, whether you're making cupcakes or you're providing you know high-level financial advice, it doesn't really matter. Getting the word out there is important, and it's got to be worth the investment. I mean, some some investments will be worth more than others, and picking the right one for the right business, you know, maybe is uh, you know is a, is a bit of a challenge for me or for others, but but the act of doing it is something that's valuable to virtually every business. Yeah. Right.
0: Uh, It's so hard to get people who are short-term thinkers to start thinking long-term. So if you're talking to a short-term thinker, what would be something that you would say to them to maybe just at least get them to start thinking about the repercussions of their short-term thinking in a long-term timeline?
1: Well, the vast majority of people that are too caught up in short-term thinking know that they are. Hmm. I think that, you know, People say to me things like, well, you know, we know that that's not the right thing to do, but it's really the only way to do it because we have so much pressure from investors and analysts and journalists and all that kind of thing. And so I think getting them to think you know, longer term requires you to you know, get them to realize the fallacies of those actions. What we did a few years ago was we looked at uh, company performance versus what analysts said they should do and also versus last year. And what we proved was that over any long period of time, really anything longer than one quarter. Improving over last year was so much more important than beating what the analysts said you were gonna do. So beating budgets or goals or targets that you know arbitrarily set really doesn't do anything for you. And so that short-term performance to try to hit an earnings per share goal or a revenue growth goal or something like that probably isn't gonna get you anywhere. Hmm. And if you think about improvement as the goal and you say, okay, well, I'm not worried about where I'm gonna be next quarter, but I'm worried about where I'm going to be two or three years from now, and the path to get there is less important, but getting there is really important. The idea of making investments in your future that maybe take some time to pay off starts to look more appealing and yeah. you know we 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 what we do is we you know we prepare little case studies of companies that have or have not followed that kind of paradigm, and you know it's pretty clear that the companies that think long term you know owners Owners care a lot about profit, right? I mean, if you own a business, you care a lot about profit, sure. but you would never like cut R and D spending or marketing to hit a profit goal. Mm-hmm. And yet, I see managers of public companies doing that all the time. And so, it's just a matter of saying that you know the destination is more important than the journey, and we're willing to take you know some kind of variability of performance along the way to try to get to where we really want to get to in, in, in whatever time frame, two or three years, or what have you. That you want to get to and that starts to open up people's thinking. Yeah, um, a bit.
0: the ability to delay gratification is definitely one of the most underrated paths to success. I think that's out there because it just takes discipline. Anybody can do it. All you have to do is just discipline yourself to look for the long-term reward instead of take the easy short-term reward. So Greg, I, I, there's so much in this conversation we keep talking about, but uh, we do need to wrap up here. What is, uh, I know that you you wrote a book recently that came out, I think in January uh, called Curing Corporate Short-Termism, which is exactly what we're kind of talking about here. So can you give us like the, the one of the biggest takeaways you would like people to take away from that book? And then also where can we go grab a copy?
1: Well, the book is available on Amazon, uh, and there's a page about the book on our website that also has links to an interview I did on Bloomberg about it, and uh, articles that have been extracted from it, and links to where you can buy the book. Uh, it's available on hardcover, softcover, and on Kindle. The book is is basically a guidebook to implementing the kinds of principles we've been talking about. You know, how do you how should you best measure performance? How should you set goals? How should you do planning and Resource allocation and how do you evaluate investments? Uh, how do you train people and educate them on what this new cultural change is supposed to be all about? And very importantly, how to to better design incentive compensation to actually motivate the right the right behavior. The book starts with a prologue, which is a fictional story describing a company that has embraced the principles in the book. So uh, I've been told by several people that read the book that I should have stuck with that theme and just made the whole book uh, a, a story. But, um, you know it's only the prologue that is uh, a fictional story, but I think it, it seems to be pretty grabbing to people to kind of communicate how much better the corporate culture can be if you get everybody thinking and acting more like long-term committed owners. Yeah, love that.
0: Love it. So if you are listening to this right now, be sure to head over to Amazon and grab a copy of Curing Corporate Short-Termism from Greg. And I promise that you will definitely get something out of that. Greg, before we sign off here, what would be the best place for people to connect with you if they want to see more of the stuff that you're putting out?
1: Well, I'm on LinkedIn, but also my email uh, is gregory.milano at fortuna-advisors.com perfect look guys
0: I, there's i say this all the time but i keep saying it because I think that it's really important to emphasize this. People like Greg have literally decades of experience and knowledge in building successful businesses. And if you're listening to a show like this and getting this advice from them for free on a conversation, how much more likely are you to learn something if you reach out and just say, what's up? Just say, thank you. Just have a quick question for them. Like he literally just gave you his email address, the exact one that I used to book him on this podcast. And and yet there's so many people that are going to listen to this and not take advantage of that opportunity. So don't be that person. Take advantage of the opportunity to connect with some of the people that I'm bringing to you here on the show and get to know them. And uh, and I, I know that you will have a positive experience doing that. Greg, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, man. I seriously had a fantastic time chatting with you. You are a wealth
1: of knowledge. Thank you, Travis. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, that's it for today's show. If you want more advanced networking strategies as well as an instant network upgrade, then consider partnering with my BYN Inner Circle Mastermind. There are already dozens of high-quality entrepreneurs in the group. There's dozens of video lessons on networking. There's monthly calls. There's accountability crews and more. All for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month. So head over to BYNInnerCircle.com to jump in. That's BYNInnerCircle.com. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We'll see you next time. Remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.